Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Hey guys, Ted and I make no secret about the fact that we love Dogtra. We've been using Dogtra products for years, even long before they became a sponsor of ours. We believe in what they do. So they're offering a discount code. You go to the website, any unit, $200 or more, put in the discount code WDR10. That's WDR10. They're going to give you 10% off that item. Go check it out, please. Dogtra, we believe in them. This one's for the explosive handlers out there. HME is a real problem, whether it be abroad or homeborn here in the United States. The thing is, handling HME is extremely dangerous and difficult. Because of that, you guys don't get to train on it near enough, but it is an actual problem. So, the guys at TrueScent Canine, that's TrueScent, the letter K, the number 9, have made it easy for us trainers and handlers to handle this stuff without danger. They do TATP, HMTD, RDX, TNT, PETN, ammonium nitrate, and potassium chlorate suspended in a silica. Now, they also give you a distractor odor so that you can put the dogs off of the background odor that it's suspended in. The trick here is that it's actual odor suspended in this base material so that you don't have to worry about the dogs not alerting on actual odor. They've done research and they've done field tests and the dogs that are routinely imprinted on this odor then imprint on actual odor in the field. So you don't have to worry about it and you don't have to worry about blowing yourself up, which is awesome. So hit them up. True scent canine. That's the letter K, the number nine dot com. They got everything you need. Highland Canine Training, LLC. To all of my fellow LE Canine guys, Highland Canine should definitely be on your short list of vendors when it comes time to adding to your unit or replacing one of your dogs. Highland Canine offers green and pre-trained single and dual purpose dogs if you train in-house. But most importantly, they offer a full-service canine academy with canine handlers courses, canine instructors courses, specialized advanced canine training, and canine supervisors courses. Jason and his staff of instructors have been there and done that in this game. They run these classes year-round, so go to their awesome website at www.tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's Tactical Police, the letter K, the number 9, training.com, and make your unit better. Let me hop in here and talk about our sponsors for the podcast, Southern Coast Canine, based out in New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine has been providing better training, better results, and better dogs for over 25 years. Led by Bill Heiser and known for their excellent high-drive dual-purpose and detection dogs and outstanding customer service. They have what you want and what you are looking for. Call 1-877-903-DOGS. That's 877-903-3647 and speak with Bill to discuss your canine needs today or visit southerncoastcanine.com that's the letter k the number nine follow them on facebook and instagram at southern coast canine the letter k the number nine all right everybody we are back working dog radio broadcasting the bite uh, another episode um uh it, today is we're recording this it is the 20, the 18th of october um this episode will air on the 23rd so this is uh really fresh uh, Ted, what do you got going on there in Tulsa? Uh, it's finally fall, uh, which is nice. Uh, I've got a guy in uh, here for decoy uh, school for 10 days, helping me with some of the patrol dogs. 
I'm finishing up, and I've got basically handler schools from now until right before Christmas. And I've got, I don't know, like eight dogs or something going home, thank God. I'm ready for them to go home. They're ready to go. The departments are ready to get them. And then I've got a whole new uh, set of dogs rolling through. Coming up, we've got a bunch of contracts that we either just got notification that we want bids on or whatever else. So, uh I don't know. I guess it never stops. It's same old, same old. The nice thing is it's not hot finally. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind decoying anymore. I'm like, yeah, show up with the suit on. I don't care. Speaking of which, Arno sent me uh, my new top, and it is, it fits great. So it basically, if everybody's been paying attention, it's that new, uh, that hidden sleeve that you and I have. He basically yeah. stuck that on a super light jacket. <clears throat> And that thing is awesome. Uh, I had it out today. Um, aside from the fact that I said, pick the two ugliest colors you have, and he made it white and neon green. Um, <laughs> oh, it's it's gnarly, which I'm sure it's going to be covered in blood and spit in no time. But so other than that, um, it's just same old, same old. Um, Alicia is uh, painting muzzles at about 50 a week. So my living room is oh. full of muzzles right now. But, yeah, what about you? I know you're getting ready to retire, right? Yeah, I got, um, as of the recording of this, I have 15 days to retire from the police department. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, um, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm going to do the Van SK9 business and the Working Dog Radio and the Patreon stuff full time. Um, I'll still be just as busy. I'll still probably get a commission and work at a police department, but I'm just moving on from where I am at, um, I'm still going to be involved in the Police Canine Association. Hopefully, my my facility is actually right across the street from my Police Canine facility, so I'll be right there with the guys. I'm not moving away. I'm not doing anything um, like that. But um, it's time for me. 23 years there has been long enough. It's time for me to move on. Uh, the pet dog stuff is crazy busy. Uh, we have just hired our fourth employee at the daycare alone, and. Um, uh, Allie and I are doing the, the board and trains and <clears throat> I'm still doing the police dog stuff. I have a dog in my kennel right now that's headed to Aruba and, um, I've got five or six bids out on different jobs, um, uh, police department jobs. So, um, I'll still be doing 20 hours a day just, uh, for myself and not for, uh, other folks. Um, but one, again, like I said, one of the things I'm going to concentrate a lot is the podcast, and we'll get into this. So tonight's episode is something that I've been looking forward to since we in interviewed this guest the first time, hoping that we would get him on again. Um, one of our early on episodes when we were at uh, Bravo 3 out in Vegas, we had the pleasure of interviewing Pat Nolan, and um, that was a very well-received episode. I loved it. Everybody loved it. I know you did. We had a great time doing oh, it. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> And we are honored, again, to have Pat Nolan on. Pat, how are you? Hey, good, thanks. Thanks for having me back, and uh, congratulations on retirement, man. That's yeah. exciting. It is. I'm I'm young. I'm only 49, but, uh, I'll, you know, I'm like you. I want to work for a long time um, doing what I want to do and, and being happy. So when we interviewed you before, <clears throat> you were getting getting ready to move or had moved or was about to. Where are you at now? I'm in Fountain Inn, South Carolina. Uh, I remarried two years ago, and for some time we were commuting back and forth, uh, sometimes in Maryland, sometimes in South Carolina. We'd 
immediate field trials in between. And uh, recently, I've moved, and it's nice to live in the same state in the same house as my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something so. to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. when we interviewed the last time, we went through your history of um, – you know, starting in the field trials and everything like that, and then kind of getting into where you are uh, uh, present day. Um, we, since then, since that interview, uh, our podcast has picked up the sponsorship from Dogtra. Uh, Ted and I have been Dogtra people for years prior to uh, even being sponsors. We talk about that a lot. In the interim, since the HITS conference, We've become field staff uh, folks for Dogtra. Actually, I just got my business cards yesterday from them. Great. And we know, um, and people in this industry know that you have had a long, long history with Dogtra and the e-collars. So we figured today's episode we would focus on e-collar, kind of, uh, and all things maybe Dogtra and e-collar and things like that. And um Talk about some things. I'm on your website looking at like seminars that you do, and we'll talk about that a little bit if you'd like, and um, kind of get into your history with not just Dogtra but the e-collar in general, because um, e-collar, as we know, is an amazing tool, and sometimes in some areas often misunderstood or definitely misapplied. Um, I've heard it said that. Um, People want to use – you should use the e-collar as a gas pedal, not a brake, and some folks don't understand how that is and how you can actually um, – you know, people still love that shock collar term, uh, and they use it just for correction, I guess it would be. So let's start Let's start back when your first impression of e-collar and how, how that kind of came about to you getting into it. Well, let's see. I think I got my first e-collar somewhere around 1978 or 79, and it was uh, Tritronics. It had one button. It was red, and when you pushed it, the dog said, arr, arr, arr. There, was, there was, at that time, it was difficult to use it for much except for punishment. And uh, they originally, the, the Tritronics... I don't want to misspeak their history, but if I understand, if I remember correctly, there were houndsmen in Arizona that were making collars to uh, to use for trash breaking to to keep their hounds from running undesired game. Mm. And they, when the the guy that bought their company, his name escapes me, but he bought their company. He was telling me that their their testing system at the time they would build the collar. And you go out and test it, and it's okay. This is a half mile collar. This is a one mile collar. That uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, the the manufacturing process was uh, rudimentary enough that uh, they didn't know really in advance what the product was going to be until they they'd make it, and then they'd know how far they could it would transmit. So they've come a long ways. When they uh, they started, they made some adjustable contact points. I think first. I forget there was plugs in the the Tritronics at the time was, was I used them for a long time, and they, they used uh, replaceable contact points and then plugs maybe, and I forget which one came first. And then they came out with the adjustable on the transmitter, and that was such a huge leap forward. Um, when uh, sometime around, I forget the 
time frame, doctor sent me some collars to try, and they had the rheostat, and you could so finely tune the pressure to match the uh, sensitivity of the dog and the distractions of the moment that they were, I really loved them, and then they were just so durable. Uh, like you, I used them for a long time before I before I did any work with or for Dogtra, and I, I'm still with them to this day. I, But I work for them because I use their collars. I don't use their collars before because I work for them. Right. So my... Uh, when I first used them, I was using the collar for uh, distance correction on obedience skills, you know, down at a distance or recall at a distance. And uh, when I got into the field sports, I saw a real need. Of course, you're working dogs at great distances, and three, four, five hundred yards out, the dogs have to stop, take direction. You have to get them to do things they don't want to do, and you have to stop them from doing things they do want to do off-leash at great distances and very close to distractions. So that's that's challenging. And uh, to get to keep a dog in drive and under tight control at great distances, pretty challenging. It's a pretty, pretty uh, demanding task. And I knew there was a way to use the collars. I just didn't know how to use it. So I trained retrievers for a while without put my collar in my closet and uh or in the shoe box you know and then mm-hmm. trained them leashes and lines i ran out and got hold of them i swam out in the ponds and caught them and I've, i have trained dogs to handle without collars and with collars is better <laughs> yeah. yeah you don't want to have a 300 <laughs> yeah. a 300 foot leash on a dog i mean i like long lines <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm pretty good at it but yeah so early on um were you kind of just figuring this out on your own or was there somebody back then that was the guru that maybe you were learning from or did you have any mentors then oh yes i i for for many years i i was uh believed i was much better in uh imitator than innovator hmm. and uh, i would i would find people that were successful uh and watch what they're doing with their dogs i'd watch what their training was doing first how their dogs ran and then then i try to get to know them and work with them and see what the what their training programs were and at the time uh the granddaddy of the e-collar programs in field trials retriever field trials was a fellow in a trainer in california named rex carr and most of the modern retriever systems are are descendant from or built on Rex Carr's work. Uh, and Mike Lardy was very successful, and I think Mike has won more nationals than anybody, national championships in the retriever sports, and he was uh, very successful. Um, and I learned a lot from Mike. I never trained with Rex Carr. I've met him. I've trained on his grounds. Uh but I, in the East Coast, I was running trials. And, well, I was, wasn't running yet. I would go to the trials and throw birds for them because I was trying to learn. And I, knew, I knew how to force fetch a dog. I knew how to teach a dog to stop and take direction. But 
the dogs were working at such great distances and the bird placement was was uh, challenging i didn't understand the complexities of the test so i was going to watch and learn and people there told me that rick and patty roberts understood the e-collar programs from rex car because they had worked with rex car for a long time so uh at a field trial one day in maryland i i went and introduced myself to rick roberts and I said that I would like to come learn the e-collar program from him. And he said, sure, come on out. And then I said, well, now, Rick, I, I want to learn the collar from you because I want to beat you at field trials one day. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> he Good laughed. luck, he rookie. Said, come on out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we've, we've been good friends since, and that's probably, uh, I'm guessing that's 30, 40 years now that I've known Rick and Patty and learned a lot from them, learned from Hugh Arthur. So I learned a lot. Of, from other people and, I, and then I refined it to my, I refined my approach, not, you know, or distilled it. I'm not sure how we you see how we'd say that I, uh, tweaked it mm-hmm. to what, what makes sense for me and my dogs. And I changed my collar application from, as I'd said before, from working with Hawks. So yeah, so- I learned a lot from other people. That's great. That's awesome. When did um, when did you start your relationship then with Dogtra? Uh, let's see. I I'm thinking it was I had quit. I ran field trials until about 20 years ago, and I don't know if I'd have to ask them. I <laughs> I'm guessing it was 15 years or more now. What their catalog look like back then? Actually, I don't know. They had a, um, just a couple collars at the time, I think, um, and you could get them with the pager or without. And uh, the the transmitters were a little bigger. The boxes were a little bigger. They never find it. They've added, you know, it's it's uh, it's a lot nicer product now. I mean, it was a good, sturdy, durable product always. Um, I've had them fall off trucks on the highway. You know, you're busy running, you move. I've had them fall off trucks and bounce on the highway and still work. Uh, I've had the cases break. You know, you drop a, a collar on the highway and the hard plastic case broke, and the collar still worked. Um, I did replace it, but we had one fall in a pond one time, a bunch of dogs out playing. And when I'm working in a, a lot of dogs, I don't use the D-ring, so I just buckle the collar. Well, I had I may have had 10 or 12 dogs out playing, swimming, running, relaxing. And one dog grabbed the, t- the tail of the collar sticking up. And when he released it, the collar fell off the other dog and it fell in the pond. And six or eight weeks later, the pond levels went down and I could see that orange strap and got the collar out and charged it up and still worked. Uh, huh. Underwater yeah. for six or eight weeks. It was, it was pretty strong. Wow. So, I, I worked a number of shot shows for them. I believe I did eight or nine shot shows for Doctor. Always had a lot of fun working with Pete and uh, and the whole crew. Yeah, we uh, we met some folks um, at Hits from Dogtra uh, at their booth, that they, and everybody was real nice, and they um, they had everything there to you know to um demo they had that they were rolling out you know they rolled out that hands free have you done a lot of work with that i've worked with them some yes i enjoyed them i like them uh i was just looking at getting another one 
yesterday I was thinking of a project where I need uh, I have the ARC hands-free, and I was thinking about ordering a 1900 hands-free. I like them, yes. Yeah, I just got mine. I know Ted. Ted's used his quite a bit. Oh, man, I use it all the time. <laughs> I use it every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have a couple dogs, ironically enough, like when I go, because I'm using it during obedience and some other stuff, and I have some dogs that are a little on the, um, they'll chase anything that moves side. And if I've got that thing hanging around my neck, I've had some dogs try and tag the remotes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, if anybody follows me on any social media or whatever, they'll see that I always have the same pair of gloves on. Um, and it, it, it serves a couple of purposes, mainly to keep me from getting torn up. But uh, I wear that hands-free thing under my glove, right in my palm. And oh, yeah. I can use it. I, I mean, and the remote just stays in my pocket. And, I mean, I kind of set it and forget it. And just then I don't. I've gotten to the point now where if I have to reach into my pocket to grab the remote, it's a really rare it's a really rare circumstance if I have to get to do that at this point. But yeah, no, I love mine. That's great. Yeah, I when in the in the initial collar conditioning, I'm going up and down quite a lot in the individual sessions. So I don't use the hands free in the initial collar conditioning. But after the initial collar conditioning, I like the hands free. Um, and uh, like you, I don't. Well, maybe not. Maybe not like you. Maybe I misunderstood. But I don't like it the uh, transmitter hanging on the lanyard on my neck. That's about the first thing I do is I take the lanyard off. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I can't stand it, right? When I'm running a dog, I have the transmitter in my hand or I have the hand-free finger kick on me. So, Handlers, yeah. police dog handlers, are you listening to that? Put the remote in your hand. <laughs> you've, said that, to, but you've said that before. Oh, you're my like, gosh. Don't try like, to run dude, it off your belt. You're like, dude, where's your remote? And you're like, oh, it's in the car. And you're like, well... What good is that going to do? Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, one of my handlers uh, has a hands-free, and he has that hands-free the button, and he wears it right in his plate carrier. And the remote just stays like he has a little holder. I Actually, he just wears it in his pocket. I have to ask him where he keeps it. But, I mean, he just puts it right up on because he's, right, uh, he's right-handed, so he puts it on his left side or right. I don't remember. So he can operate it with his left hand, but, I mean, it's just strapped mm-hmm. straight to his plate carrier. I'm like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice little piece of equipment. So yeah. so let's go back your your um the e collar comes out, it's got that rheostat dial and um you're doing things with the uh with the trial dogs and everything with it. When did you and I'm gonna get into this because even though this is called working dog radio, probably a large amount of our subscribers are pet dog people. You know, just people that are interested in this whole thing. Right. When when did you start getting into where you realized I, I just know dog behavior and and maybe these pet thing you know pet dogs I can do some of this stuff with? Well, I I actually I started training in a guard dog company in Denver, Colorado, uh, in 1975 when I got out of the army, and I went from there to I was involved in Schutzen sport for a while. Uh, I trained for the sport, and I, I did a lot of decoy work for Schutzen Group. Um, and in there, I was doing obedience, and I was, uh, I, I think I titled an obedience dog um, years ago, and I taught classes for a while. And then I was, I went from teaching obedience classes into the field stuff. So I had been at that for a while. Um, and when I had a, a full truck of field dogs, I 
stopped running obedience classes. And then after I stopped trialing, I started back into the obedience work again. So it was kind of revisiting old haunts. Yeah. But when years ago, when I, when I was doing the obedience classes, I did not do any e-collar work. And for many years, the e-collar was, uh, it was an oddity. If anyone saw it, they'd say, well, you know, what is that? And I said, well, it's an electronic training collar. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it's like a shock collar. I said, well, yeah. And at first people were very put off, and some people still are. Uh, mm-hmm. But the underground fence was a big help as a selling point then at some point. When more and more people were putting underground fence in, that was my next reply. Some people said, what is that? I said, well, it's kind of like underground fence, but I take it wherever I go. And so, okay, my brother has one of those. You know, or my neighbor has one. It works great. So that that's helped smooth the way I thought in, in my neighborhoods for uh, – for the palatability of the econ. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Um, Cause I still get that from folks. I get, I get it from green police dog guys. Um, when they come, sometimes they'll, they'll not really be dog people and, and not really understand that. Um, I'm told that um, there's even a special operations unit that uh, uh, got a new boss and he, he made him stop using e-collars cause he didn't, uh, know it and understand it. Um, what have you found through the time is like the biggest obstacle uh, as far as getting owners to understand what it's about? Well, I believe two things. One, this some you know, there's a certain percent that's like a magic tool. You just put the collar on, push the button, and and they're supposed to do it, you know, and, and they don't understand. There's some subset of people that don't understand the need for instruction to go with the collar <laughs> instruction mm-hmm. for the dog to go with the collar. They say, well, you know, I got, I got one of those shot collars once and put it on the dog and, you know, it didn't do, do any good at all. He still did the same dumb stuff, you know? Um, so there are, there is a subset that, that doesn't understand that you have to instruct the dog how to respond. And, and then, uh, there is a again another subset that that wants to use the collar only to stop behavior stop that stop that stop that stop that and you do enough of that long enough and the dogs don't like it when they have a collar on and they act different when the collar's on when it's not and if you want a dog free free minded uh clear-headed actively engaged in your training program trying to learn what you want, trying to work towards the same goals as you. It can't be primarily a punishment tool. Right. So you do, um, I know you do seminars uh, all over the United States. And one of your main seminars is a um, e-collar and directional introduction class and covering the push-pull training. And um, what, what is that? Get into that if you don't mind what, what push-pull training is. When, uh, I, well, I, I call it push-pull training and drive. And there's a, uh, I guess when we're to control the consequences for a dog in training, there are four main consequences that we need to control. Two of the consequences increase behavior. Two consequences decrease behavior. 
the two consequences that increase behavior, positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. And the two that decrease behavior is positive punishment and negative punishment. Now, the definition of the reinforcement means that it is increasing, I, and this is my definition of it, and I believe it's close to the scientific definition. So um, a reinforcement increases the frequency, intensity, or likelihood of a behavior occurring. So if it's increasing the strength of a behavior, it's a reinforcement. Now, positive reinforcement doesn't mean that the dog likes it. It means that we add something to the situation and the behavior that's connected with that addition gets stronger. Negative reinforcement means we take something out of the training situation and the behavior that's connected with that, removing that, that behavior gets stronger. So the punishment, again, a positive punishment doesn't mean that he likes it. Punishment means that behavior goes down. Positive punishment means we add something and the behavior goes down. Negative punishment, we take something away and it goes down. So push-pull is I want the push of pressure to push the dog to do desired behavior. And I want the strong pull, his desire for the reward, pulls him into the behavior. And actually, most of the time, I present it as pull push. So I get him to do the behavior. I give him a reward. I connect a reward to that behavior, something that he wants. So it's a reinforcement because he's wanting it. And then when he likes the stuff, then I use pressure to push him to do it. And so it's, I say push pull because pull push doesn't sound nice. Push pull sounds kind of right to me. It just has a ring to it. Push pull. But I generally it's pull push is the way I teach it. And and then training and drive, push pull, training and drive. I I put the dog in, in a state where he's wanting something. He I, he sees the tennis ball. He wants the tennis ball. So now he's in a state of anticipation or desire. He wants the ball. Now he's in drive and then I'm gonna show him how to get the ball. You want the ball? Step up on the table. Boom, I mark it and give him the ball. So I use reward markers, uh, a couple of different markers in training, but a reward marker for sure. And mark the behavior and then deliver the reward. Mark the behavior and deliver the reward. And then we use pressure. So now I'm gonna walk towards the table and I put a little e-collar pressure, bump, bump, bump. He gets up on the table, pressure stops. And then we mark, okay, and throw the tug. So now I have push of the pressure of the collar or other physical pressures, pushing him to do the behavior. And then his strong desire for the ball, he says, I can make him throw the ball. And let me get to the table quickly now, and I can make him throw the ball. If it's only the desire for the reward, the dog's kind of the king of the world. If that's the only thing that motivates his behavior is the desire for the reward. I'm at the mercy of whatever he wants most. So if I have a kibble and he sees a tennis ball that he'd rather have, I can't get him to work because he wants the tennis ball. If I have the tennis ball, but he sees a tug that he likes more, I can't get him to work because he wants the tug. If I have the tug, 
But he says, you know, this guy in a suit, I could bite him. So I'm always at the mercy of whatever he thinks is most important at the time. If it's only pull, if it's only push, if the only reason the dog is doing behavior is to avoid pressure, the behavior goes away when he realizes I'm in a situation where I can't hurt him. So if we use both together, and not hurt, but but apply pressure, let me say it that way, and it is some discomfort, but it's not hurting. So, you know, like my shoes are too tight, I loosen them up. You don't have to drop a concrete block on my foot to get me to do something <laughs> with my shoes, you know. It's just, the shoes are too tight, let's loosen the laces. I feel better now. Um, so, whoa, pulled my phone off the wall. Y'all still hear me? Oh, yeah, right, we're good. There we go. <laughs> um, so, the two things that I want to to pull desired behavior from the dog we connect reward with that behavior with a marker a reward marker whether it's a clicker or a whistle or a word when we connect reward to behavior with a marker the behavior becomes rewarding so he wants to do those things and then with pressures i can tell him now's a good time to want to do those things so you get a dog that's engaged in the training process. He wants to figure out what's going on. He wants to figure out what to do to make you produce reward. He wants to accomplish the things that I want him to do. And then we have precision and speed and power with um, his natural drives. And then some, some pressures to say, now's a good time to want to go to the table. So that's, that's a long explanation, but that's why I call it push-pull training and drive. Awesome. Hey, uh, <clears throat> we're going to take a break for like two seconds. Uh, we're going to make sure that this thing stays online, and uh, we'll be back. Proven canine training, proven results, providing scenario-based training for law enforcement based on years of law enforcement and military service. Creating dogs for scent detection, tracking, patrol, and obedience. National certifying official for all aspects of canine and canine-related work. Watch for seminars across the country, near your locations in Northeast New Mexico and Amarillo, Texas. Find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Proven Canine Training, the letter K, the number 9, or at www.provendogtraining.com or give JJ a call at 417-844-5816. Eric here. Like many trainers, Ted and I go through toys with the hard, super-chewer dogs we typically have in our kennels. So we need toys designed to withstand the grueling reality of high-drive working dogs. That's where USA Canine Dog Toys excel. Their toys are made from an extremely durable rubber compound. They have reward toys as well as food dispenser toys, all made to last and are very affordable. All the toys are military-themed. Go to the website, www.usa-canine.com. Check out the grenade-shaped toys. They got the cherry bomb. They got a lot of other great things over there, military-themed toys. Here's the best part. A portion of all USA Canine proceeds go to support military working dogs and other veterans organizations. And that's freaking badass. www.usa-canine.com. Use the promo code K9P. 
Pro or check them out on Instagram at USA Canine Dog Toys. Astute trainers with proper training tools are always the key to unleashing your dog's full potential. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and ball training to support dog owners in developing top-notch working dogs. Trusted by professional dog trainers, canine officers, and hunters, Dogtra enhances your training journey with durable training products equipped with patented, accurate, intuitive controls and technology to ensure the best experience. Join us, and together we can make every dog exceptional find them at dogtra.com this one's for the explosive handlers out there hme is a real problem whether it be abroad or homeborn here in the united states the thing is handling hme is extremely dangerous and difficult because of that you guys don't get to train on it near enough but it is an actual problem so the guys at true scent canine that's true scent the letter k the number nine have made it easy for us trainers and handlers to handle this stuff without danger. They do TATP, HMTD, RDX, TNT, PETN, ammonium nitrate, and potassium chlorate suspended in a silica. Now, they also give you a distractor odor so that you can put the dogs off of the background odor that it's suspended in. The trick here is that it's actual odor suspended in this base material so that you don't have to worry about the dogs not alerting on actual odor. They've done research and they've done field tests and the dogs that are routinely imprinted on this odor then imprint on actual odor in the field. So you don't have to worry about it and you don't have to worry about blowing yourself up, which is awesome. So hit them up, TrueScent Canine, that's the letter K, the number nine, dot com. They got everything you need. All right, we're back uh, with Pat Nolan, uh, again, another two-time uh, interviewee. And uh, we've been talking about push-pull, talking about e-collars, and uh, back in the day before <clears throat> we were just using them as correction tools and how we're now we're using them for other things as well. So at one point in time, Pat, either here or I think in the previous episode that we interviewed you, you said you never thought that you would be a food trainer um, and just a minute ago, before the before the commercial break, you talked about um, rewarding the dog and using markers and using several different markers. So, talk about how um, you started using um, positive and then again negative marks, and how you sort of use uh, e collars and integrate that stuff into training. Sure. I was training a group of. Young, a group of young retrievers, and it was a time I was successful in trials, but I wanted more, wanted to do more, and I wanted to get more out of the dogs I had. I was flying a hawk. I think I told the story in the first interview. And I got – the hawk amazed me, what I could get from this hawk in a short period of time in training a wild animal. And so I began to analyze what was I doing different with this bird that the bird wanted to work with me, but some of my young dogs didn't really enjoy training. And what was, I was contrasting then with what I was doing with my dogs and what I was doing with the birds. And my basic style at the time was, I don't want to say compulsion, I was, but more mechanical. I was training mechanically. I would place a dog to sit. I would use the leash to pull the dog in. I would place the dog to down. So mechanically, I was going through all these steps and when he did it, good boy, and place him in good boy. And and then I would correct him if he didn't do it. 
and I was clear with my instruction and it wasn't uh, unclear to the animal what I was asking, but I really wasn't working very hard to try to motivate him to get him to want to do it. I just said, here's the facts of life. You've got to do this. And when I started analyzing with the bird what I was doing differently, I was manipulating my training scenarios so that the bird wanted to do what I wanted him to do. And I started to realize lots of ways in training dogs where if I just made a little different a little different presentation of the lesson, I could get him to want to do what I wanted him to do. And I realized that the bird was training in drive the whole time. I didn't do anything really mechanically with the bird except for the initial manning where he had to learn to accept me. That's just a mechanical process. But the rest of the training was all training in drive. I had what the bird wanted. I showed him that I showed him that I have what you want. I show him that I control access to it, and I show him that I want him to have it. I want you to have this. Let me show you what you need to do. And I started doing the same things with my dogs. I started doing more rewarding with them. Uh, and I guess it was a bit of an evolution for me in that at first it was mechanical presentation with some praise. When we got through the basic skills, we put more birds to them, and hopefully they came back up in their attitude. Then I started interrupting my training sessions with some retrieving drives. And so now, periodically, we'd work and then play, work and then play. And that was better, but still I was just, it wasn't really changing the attitude for the work a whole lot. It just, you know, I put up with this for a little bit and then I get to do what I want. But when I realized how to train and drive and that I could show him the things that I want come to me. If you come to me, I, you know you can get this tug, and not a bribe to lure him, but a response to his behavior. He could make me produce things that he wanted. Now the dog was actively pursuing his goals while he was doing the things I wanted him to do. So it's easier to make him do what he wants to do on time. You know, come here. He says, well, it's a good time to come. I'm, I can make him produce a tug. Um, so then I would, the one beauty of the, the dogs, of course, is that we can use pressures. Uh, you can't use much pressure with a wild animal. Uh, they don't respond well to it. But the dogs do respond to pressures. And it's not, it's, if we are clear in our instruction, and we're fair. By fair, I mean we're not asking things of them they can't do or that are unreasonable. It's pressures. Working to avoid pressure is a fact of life. When it's cold outside, I put a coat on and I get warm. That's escape learning. When I figure out that it's going to get cold because the sun's going down and I put my coat on before I get cold and I stay warm the whole time, that's avoidance learning. And that's what I want for my dog in, with pressure. I teach him how to turn pressure off. And then when he learns how to turn it off, he knows how to avoid it in the future. That's my goal for the e-collar, that we wear, that the dog is obedient to command, 
not do collar. And my goal is to, the collar's always there, like a supervisor in a job maybe. And But my goal is too that I don't push the button only for disobedience in the end result and very infrequently for disobedience. And then I don't punish the disobedience. I repeat the command and force for the desired command. So that, you, uh, what year, I, you wrote a book, right? Uh, obedience training manual. Um, yeah. What year was that? I forget when I did that. I, I wrote it for Daltra and then I, I unbranded it too and released it on, uh, Amazon. So we had an internet when I wrote that one. Uh, <laughs> I have <laughs> I've started many books. I've got about four or five books and projects in different stages, and uh, I'm working on on two of them right now. But I, so I forget when I wrote that that obedience training manual, the e collar manual. You mean is that the one? Yeah, you're talking about? yeah, the companion dog obedience training with uh, e collars. Um, I'm looking at the I'm looking at it right now, and you had a pretty sweet mustache going in that. Uh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> in that cover. <laughs> I was kind. Of, I was known for. I had a. I had a beard for 20 years, and wow. then I, I kept a. The mustache was 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 prominent at different times, <laughs> but I, I've shaved it off. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite. Yeah, that's quite the stash. So so going um, once you started figuring out with the the hawk and everything like that. Are there still dogs you get in that you still teach using your older methods that you used to do more frequently that can handle a little bit more, or you just kind of have moved on and most of them are generally trained the same way? Well, uh, I, I kind of meet the dog where he is. My, I have found when I was doing a lot with puppies and I have found that I couldn't train most puppies the way you train way I was training big dogs. But when I found successful ways to train my puppies, I found that the big dogs would learn the same way. So I couldn't train the puppies like I used to train the big dogs. But when I learned how to train the puppies, I could train the big dogs that way. So the same here. Uh, I, what I have done is when I found what works, these methods also work with softer dogs, a little lower drive, because it preserves the drive he has and it builds the drive that the dog has. Uh, it increases control, power, and speed. At the same time, it's building drive. So there's much less conflict in that I'm not, if the dog is not training in drive, and by that again, he's in a drive state, he wants something. And I'm showing him, I'd like you to go to the table now. And I know it's not intellectually explained. Like I hope, I mean, everybody knows we don't explain it like this to them and they don't process that this. I would like you to go to the table now. And if you go to the table now, I will reward you with the tug. Not reward you, but you can make me produce the tug. So I'm explain that to him, but that's kind of a deal I have with him. So now he's in pursuit of the tug when he's going to the table. And once they understand that gig that I want to give, you know, the only reason I buy tugs is to give them to dogs. I don't buy them because I like tugs. Um, so <laughs> once they understand that I want him to have them, now they don't take it as we're not fighting him to control him. If, if they don't make that jump to train and drive, the 
the the obedience things that we need a dog to do come sit down stay go there those things we need to do they're taking as we're fighting them and it's conflict because we're, we're correcting him and stopping him he's trying to get a get out try to get a bite he's trying to get the tug and these controls are preventing him from getting what he wants and it's that's conflict for the dog but when he understands training and drive he sees that sitting is just a way to get more tugs. Coming when I call you is a way to get more tugs. So much less conflict, which requires, which is a clear head, speeds training, and it doesn't take as much pressure. And it's easier to work. They're so much more manipulable. Manipulable, that's a bad word. I think I made that one up just now. It's easier to manipulate them in training. By that, I mean the malleable like clay to push them and pull them to do what we want. It's not hard and fast. We're, you know, the police dog that you buy for a department. He really is obsessed about some things in life where you wouldn't have bought him. He wants a tug. And if there's tugs on the ground or he knows there's a tug in, in somewhere in training and we're trying to get him to do something, but he wants to go get the tug instead of what we're trying to do, now it's a fight. But if he believes he can make us produce the tug by doing the things we're asking him to do, he's working with you. He's got us full as attention. He's fully engaged in the training process. Much less conflict. That's an interesting concept. That's something I talk to my handlers about a lot. Uh, we have some states that are close to me that um, that have some uh, state mandatory certification deals that um, I tell my handlers all the time. I'm like, you know, the, some of the behaviors that we ask police dogs to do uh, are actually counter to the certification process. So we're constantly dealing with competing motivators. And... You know, where we, we want the dog to actively do his job, but he's also got to get through the certification process. And this conversation that we're having now is very similar to the one that I have with my guys where we're like, you know, the, the, the only thing this dog wants to do in life is to go find a decoy or go find a bad guy and bite him or whatever else. And then getting him to out and recall back to you for a tug is a pretty nebulous concept for the dog. And we're asking them to do one behavior at 110%, and then we want him to turn around and do the secondary behavior at 110% too. So I guess inadvertently I sort of kind of do the exact same thing. I guess I kind of fell into it by trial and error. But uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting concept because when you explain it to people, and, this, and, and you know, for, every, for all the police dog handlers that are listening, when I say um, – you know, when people hear Eric and I say outs are overrated and people kind of laugh at me and I'm like, no, seriously, I mean, we can get, you know, I don't teach an out until, I don't know, like the last three days of handler school or something. I don't even really worry about it. And we do it without conflict. We do it in a way that is basically how we're describing it now. And, you know, they're super clean and we do it in very specific circumstances, very specific instances. And, you know, the context is set up and the context is this is how we're going to do it. This is when you're going out. This is why you're going out. When you do it, this is what happens down the line. And, um, it's choreographed and everything else. But I mean, Eric and I have talked about that at length before, but yeah. As, as opposed to, if you just take a dog who's bred to fight men, he's raised to fight men. 
the ones that wouldn't fight didn't get get through the the, the group to the club. The ones that you that weren't strong enough didn't get bought and brought over here. The ones that you didn't like, you didn't pick. You teach him to bite. You teach him to fight, and then you just start hurting him and tell him to let go. Well, he understands when people hurt me, I fight harder and they go away. Um, and if he didn't understand that, he wouldn't be a good police dog. People hurt me, I fight harder and they stop. And and so we're just going to put him on a fight in that extremely high state and then try to hurt him and make him out. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that, that yeah. never, and, you know, that never is, and I guess I do it uh, now that I sit here, we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about how I do it. And I do it by manipulating drive levels or drive states. So I get the out and a recall um, in a dog that's a, you know, in a substantially lower drive state. So, and then we increase drive or increase the drive state and the dog's willingness to work through those different levels of drive as we increase rather than just sending him downfield to a decoy and letting that he's done 150 times before and we let him nuke a guy and then we're like oh dog named los and then we just blast him with an e-collar and he has no idea why he's being blasted and and you know that's the thing that i always yell at my handlers and that i tell to other people too i'm like you know don't ever confuse a dog that won't out with one that's never been asked to and one that doesn't understand why he's being or what he's being asked to do. So, you know, I, I typically when I teach because I pre-train a lot of the dogs, so I'll teach them to out off of toys and out off of tugs and out of everything else. Yeah. Um, and then kind of in my back of my mind when my handler show up, I'm like, OK, when we're doing, you know, apprehension stuff, don't ever ask this dog out. And I'll tell you why later. But we'll do we'll go through a specific deal or we'll go through a specific process. And when it's time to do it, we'll do it. And just about every single time. It works magnificently, and my mentor or my partner now, Scott, it's kind of his thing, and I guess he's kind of learned it through trial and error. But and I've screwed it up a lot too. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, for <Of> sure. <laughs> so, so Pat, in regards to use of the e collar, um, you know, there's there's several different. I've talked to a lot of people. They they manipulate the collar the 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 E a little bit differently. Some like there was a guy, a dog tree guy I just met that he does just pets and he only uses the vibrate mode. I've met people that only use uh, continuous, only use the Nick only use, they start low. And as they're holding the continuous, they, they ramp the dial up. So re- without like rewriting your book, let's, if you could go through like, um, so you got to You got some, somebody who's training a dog and he's, He's taught them some basic commands, and now we want to condition the e-collar. That first couple days, what's your style with the e-collar? Well, I when we're talking about controlling consequences for the dog, the consequences have to be three things, meaningful, timely, and contingent. And by contingent, I mean directly connected to specific behavior. So – Meaningful. Uh, the timely and the meaning, the timely and contingent is is kind of built into the e collar. It's immediate. As soon as I push the button, he feels it. As soon as I stop pushing the button, he doesn't feel it anymore. So the timing of the collar is is actually more. It's a could be more precise than I can be, but so that the timing is is there. And then contingent. Whatever he's doing when pressure stops is he's more likely to do in the future in that situation. So um, 
so that's it's directly connected for him because whatever he's doing when the pressure stops, he logs that away. Is that's what I need to do in this situation to make it go away. So the way I start is with the dog on a slack leash. I bump on the nick buttons and I start on zero and I bring it up until the dog recognizes the e collar. I that's all I need is just that he recognizes something happened. And then the second thing I teach him is I when he's on the I generally start on about a ten or twelve foot line unless I'm unless there's some real concern that he would would you know aggress against you. And then I probably have a muscle if it's a real concern. Um but I I might start on a shorter leash. But otherwise I he's on a twelve foot line. I wait for the line to get slack. We're walking along and I don't say anything. He gets to the end of the line and I put a little tension on the line and I start bumping on the collar and I lean into the the leash, the line just a little bit. So now if he yields to the leash pressure and takes one step towards me, I stop bumping. I do that a couple of times because what I want him to understand is that when I move, I can turn that thing off. So I find a setting that he can feel but it's not disruptive. I teach him when you move, you can turn it off. And then I just go about showing him different ways to move to turn it off. Typically, I introduce come to me and go away from me in the first session. And I use tables for that. So come to me and go to the table uh, in the first session. And sometimes I get more, but I, I like to introduce those two. I want to balance behavior you know balanced response to the collar i think if you do like if you do recall for six or eight weeks and get a perfect recall it'd be very difficult to get him to do a stay then in response to the collar be difficult to get him to go away from you in response to the collar. you know it's interesting you say that i've gotten some dogs in from uh uh, some european countries and that uh, you know they're agreeing that i didn't train or didn't do the foundation work on and I can always tell when those dogs have been trained with exactly what you're saying because they have what I call the Velcro dog syndrome. So they know they got the collar on and they don't want to get away from me to the point where if they're on, you know, because I'll use like a 10 or 15 foot line without a handle on it for, you know, some detection stuff and for imprinting. And if they have an e-collar on, they will not get away from me. I mean, they want to heal. They want to do anything else other than be away from me. And I call it Velcro dog. And they they have been force recalled for, like you said, probably longer than six or eight weeks, probably like 15, 20, most of their life. And they got great recalls, but... You know, it, it's difficult to get them to work independently, and I, you know, they it, and I generally just take the collar off and kind of let them just work without it for a little while, and then kind of reintroduce it. And then I kind of not necessarily reintroduce, but I I introduce it in a different way, similar to what you're talking about. But yeah, I mean, I, I've seen that. I, I've seen that, and it's all in pointier breeds, though, not in floppy dogs. But for yeah, for sure. And and what I do with that dog, if if I teach him to go away from me first, you know, you bump him with the collar once or twice. As soon as he feels it, he comes to your side and goes into a heel position. What I do is I go to the tables and teach him. The first thing I teach him in response to the collar is go away from me. And um, and it's not go away from me because that doesn't make any sense to the dog, but go to the table. That does make sense. 
He has clear criteria, very clear objective. He knows exactly what he needs to do. And uh, so it makes sense. And then I tie in markers, powerful rewards for him. And that's the way I would, I would, I would work that dog opposite first. Usually I do come here and then go away. But with that dog, I do go away first. So before, before we um, get into our plugs and wrapping things up, I saw online the other day, uh, I say the other day, like a few weeks ago, you're always innovating things, right? You're always coming up with different things. Uh, this, uh, it like blew my mind how amazingly simple it is, but how genius it was. This kind of lazy Susan detection imprinting uh, round table thing that you came up with. Talk about that real quick. Well, thank you. Uh, I have, when I was involved in a project a while back where they were, we were imprinting some dogs, a group of dogs on a very low mass, uh, very small mass of a non-volatile target material. And it was low enough mass that we had to use, uh, glass or metal containers and we had to wash them every day and so that you couldn't have residual or you're not training on low levels anymore and so you put it in a box you use it one day and we're, we put it away you have to clean it and get another one well and so I was started with some one cubic foot square boxes with holes in the top the Ray Allen sent boxes there and uh, I shuffle I want to imprint the dog I, I let the dog sniff the way I do an odor imprint is I use a, like a can, a shaker can, and the dog comes over and smells it. I present it and he smells it. A lot of times I like to pay the dog away from the odor and, and I want the dog totally free. So I'm in a small room. The dog comes over and, and I move my hand a little bit. And he sniffs the can. When he does, I push the button on a, on a feeder it may, it, that's behind him. The dog's between me and the feeder, so it's behind him. Beep! It makes him a noise. He runs over to the feeder. I flip the can to my other hand. So I get to imprint. He smells the odor. I hope he smells the odor when he puts his nose on the can. And as soon as he smells the odor, beep! He gets the reward marker. He runs to the food. I do a few of those. And then I put that can. I let him, somebody holds him. I let them see me, the dog see me put the can in the, the Ray Allen box. So now he runs over and puts his nose in the box, beep, and he runs behind him to the feeder. And when he does, I put a second box out, and I put the empty box closer to the dog than the target box. So he comes away from the feeder. He runs to the first box he gets to, puts his nose in, nothing happens. He checks the next one, and there's target odor in there, and I believe he's encountering it when he puts his face in, beep. And he runs back to the machine. Then I put in a third. So, and then I put in a fourth. And now I have four boxes and I'm sitting and shuffling them. He runs to the machine. And with his back turned, I shuffle the box and then I sit still. And he comes up and he's on his own. He's free searching. Uh, and this is typically the end of the first session, sometimes the second one. But they're free searching. And I'm, he has had exposure to the odor. But I still call it imprinting in the sense that he's still learning about this odor. The boxes aren't empty. One might be empty. Two will have the distractions. 
or control odors, and then one has the target. And so he has to make a choice now. He's choosing. Well, we were – this program, I was working a group of six dogs, and I was getting average we – we were keeping count of these things because it was a research program. We were averaging 80 reinforcements a day on target odor. Well, when I was shifting four of those big steel boxes – 80 times a day for six dogs, that's a lot of box shuffling. And so I did that for a a day, um, maybe a full day, maybe two days. I don't know how long, but I didn't do it very long when I, you know, said this is crazy. And I made a carousel or a, 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 you know, a wheel, big lazy Susan. And I bought a lazy Susan bearing online. And took a sheet of plywood, and at first I cut it, uh, I think just in half, and worked with that. But what we ended up with was the the corners were farther than the than the other box bo- boxes, so the dog would skip them. So we added, I put little winglets on each of the sides, so now the boxes were all the holes were all centered 30 inches from the center. And we could get eight of those one-foot cubed boxes on the on the carousel. And now I would stand back from the carousel and the dog would search. When he would find the odor, beep, he'd run to the machine. And you hold down and it keeps dispensing food while you hold it down. I'd just step forward with my foot and spin the carousel, stop it, step back, and then let go. The feeder would stop and he'd run up and he'd search again. So we... We built that carousel, and and it was a big improvement. I didn't have to do all the shuffling. <laughs> we were able to move it. And again, we averaged 80, 80 hits a day on odor for six dogs uh, by myself for the first couple of weeks, and then, then I added help. But uh, they say necessity is the mother of invention, huh? <laughs> you betcha. You yeah. Betcha. So they, uh, the thing you're talking about, the the remote reward, that's the manners minor thing, right? That's the manners miners. I have okay. some that that I've made, but the manners miners was the one I was using there. Yes. Yeah, I, I've used those before in a similar deal to what you're talking about, and I've used them for pet dogs too. Ones that are assholes when they run it, run at the door when the when the doorbell rings, and I have pet people that don't understand how it work how to train a dog, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this is what you do, and make uh-huh. him run to a spot, and when the doorbell rings, he runs, and then you hit the bo- the button, they're like, oh, this is great. But yeah, those things are you can get them on Amazon, or I, I don't, I have like. I don't know. I think I've got one here somewhere. I've got several actually. We've got, but yeah, those things are awesome. And because uh, yeah. I, I know I was as you were talking about it, I was like, I better mention it because if I don't, somebody's gonna be like, well, "What's he talking about?" So yeah, it's the manners minder. <laughs> like, Sorry. No, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's the manners minder. You can if you just go to Amazon, they're like 150 bucks or I don't know 100. I don't know. They're whatever they are. But yeah, you fill them with food. They got a remote. They have another thing. You like teach the dog touch his nose. It's like a little like clown ball thing mm-hmm. or whatever and yeah they're it's a super cool training thing um that a lot of people like pat have repurposed for our purposes so for sure. so what we've learned over all these years is work smarter not harder you yeah. betcha <laughs> you betcha well we had to um if you'll indulge me for a minute at sure. when we were we were going to be tested on those boxes and so we started setting up multiple rooms to simulate the test. And what was happening was we were moving 
60 boxes a day, shuffling them around in a building and then having to, to wash boxes. So it was, uh, it was quite an involved process. And, and again, I didn't do that very long when I said, we got to do something different. So I, I made a that little sounds, carousel. That sounds awful. <laughs> oh, it was, a lot, it was a lot of work. <laughs> and, and so I made a scent wheel. Well, you know, scent wheels, lots of people make scent wheels, but, um, these were, uh, aluminum and they have, we, what we ended up with is a design that's got a spinning hub that you can pull a pin and spin it. You can lock it in place. You can pull a pin, raise it up and down on the upright. The target materials, again, we had to kind of single use those cans one day and then put away. So we went to a stainless steel shaker on the end of the scent wheels and you just pull out the stainless steel shaker, wash it, and that's all you have to wash is the, the stainless steel shaker. So, that, again, that was a big time saver. And to move, you could pick up a wheel with 12 arms on it and just move it from one room to the next all by yourself. And, <laughs> and in fact, they, they started testing us on them. They came and saw them and liked them so much, they started testing us on them. So That's awesome. So looking Very at your uh, schedule, looking at your schedule here, um, you're still doing tons of seminars, not just on e-collar and directional stuff. You're really still into the retriever training stuff. I see in the spring you got some – you've already had a bunch this fall, it looks like. Um, you got some stuff coming up in the spring. You want to go over your schedule that you know of already? Yes. Yeah, so we we have uh, – let's see. Next week I do a retriever seminar in Elkton, Maryland. And it's a two-day seminar on uh, training retrievers for hunting and for but primarily competition. Some hunting, but primarily competition. And then, uh, let's see, I've got some other projects cooking. We're going to do a seminar in, we're going to Australia in January, and I think we're going to do some work while we're there. There's some some events trying to they're, they're trying to iron out some dates on. Uh, I think we're going to get to do some work in Australia in January, and then we're going to go to Finland in May, and then uh, retriever seminar in. Um, let's see, I've got a directional seminar in West Virginia, not West Virginia, in Winchester, Virginia, and I forget the date on that, but. See if I can pull that up. Um, it may be in April um, in Winchester, Virginia, one-week seminar that's, that is open to public and uh, not just restricted to military and law enforcement. And Yeah, I see a couple things in April. And retriever seminar in April and e-collar and directional yes. in, intro in April. Um, yes. For those, those – uh, Trial dog people listen to the gun dog people listen to the retriever training seminar. What are they looking at there? Well, the the retriever sports, the dogs work. They're tested on land and water. They're as they're they're hunted on land and water. They're tested on land and water. Dogs have to be steady. They sit by your side, off leash, no collar, no leash. While they shoot and throw birds at a distance, the dog has to sit quietly, watch them fall. And go get them, bring them back, and deliver to hand. Now, and they put the judges have great liberty where they can put the birds. There are no prescribed tests. There's no there's no pattern to it. So you have to the dogs 
have to learn concepts and skills that they can apply in new situations. Doggone it. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> That's all right. It's okay. Those landline phones, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry about that. How many people um, listening to this don't even know that phones had used to have cords on them? <laughs> <laughs> so they have to um, watch birds down and go get them, and then they have to take directional signals to go retrieve birds that they didn't see fall. And the the big challenge, there's two big challenges to the retriever sports. One is just the distance, but but not only that, the fact that there's no pattern. Uh, the judges are, have great liberty to put the birds wherever they want. The fields are all different. The ponds are shaped different. They say, oh, gee, you know, if we put a bird down there by that big tree, it'd be hard for a dog to get there from here. And that's what they do. They try to put the birds where they don't think dogs want to go. And as a trainer, you need to teach them to be able to do these things on the fly, you know, to learn skills that they can apply to a new situation. Uh, very challenging sport. So let me ask you this real quick before we uh, wrap it up. Knowing that, um, is there an intelligence network on judges as to human beings, whether they think they're being random, oftentimes they're not random. Um, we talked to uh, Jerry Bradshaw about PSA, and there's definitely with the PSA, um, how the decoys are set up some of their decoy parts of their testing um, there's a network of what did he do? What's his tendencies? Is that a thing in the, in the, uh, retriever sports? Uh, yes, it, there is in that some you, people know judges, particular likes and dislikes. They say, well, this guy likes big tests or this, this gal likes very tight and technical positions. But again, there's, so you have, you can learn some flavor. You run under somebody a couple times and you begin to, to recognize a little bit there what they're looking for in a dog. Yeah, it's you can't change a dog, you know, get you know, let me make this a different dog for next next Thursday, but uh but you can kind of show them some things that you think you might see. But yes. That, yeah. That's awesome. All right, Pat. Um, again, I knew this would be an awesome episode. Uh, you didn't disappoint. I've learned so much from watching your videos and just listen to you talk. And, and, you know, you probably hear that a lot, but, uh, you're going to keep hearing it because we're going to keep telling you, um, you're well, doing great work out there and, uh, yeah. and don't retire. Don't be like me and be an idiot and retire young. <laughs> keep working. We need you. Um, too late so, for me to retire young. <laughs> yeah, it's over, Johnny. Uh, Ted, Ted, what do you got going on here? Uh, just more dog stuff. Uh, I mean, literally, I'm closing out the year and finishing up with a lot of our departments. And like I said, I got a bunch of handlers that are going to be here forever. Is what it's going to be like. So, uh, it is going to be a super uh, busy time at the kennel. Um, other than that, uh, not a whole lot. I mean, you can find me on instagram at 10 underscore summers and then of course you can find the podcast of working uh under working underscore dog underscore radio and then of course working dog dry goods and then you can find us on facebook as well uh you're where i'm at van s canine on instagram mostly van s canine academy on facebook um we have the patreon patreon account i should say uh if you go to patreon.com look up working dog radio there's different sponsorship levels. We put a ton of private content on there already. Um, I think people really like it. Um, real quick, you want to talk about HRD? 
Yeah, so HRD is another company that uh, I had a guy come through my police trainer school, uh, Ray, and, you know, the scenario-based training thing, that big deal, you and I just got back from New England Street street Tactics Seminar hosted by the Albany County Sheriff's Office. It was a super great event, um, well-supported. The sheriff came out, uh, Sheriff Craig Apple. It was awesome that he was there. Um, You know, I don't know a lot of sheriffs that would do that um, in a fairly large county, especially. And... You know, the entire event was centered around scenario-based training and not certification training. We've talked about it at length. Bradshaw talks about it at length. Like, several people talk about it at length. So, you know, the HRD company, which stands for high-risk deployment, kind of grew out of a necessity for, I think, to take that on the road to other portions of the country. Um, If you Google HRD Police Canine, um, it'll come up. And we are scheduled now. I think we've got five seminars scheduled next year um, in like Indiana, Illinois, Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, Columbia, like not Missouri, like the country Columbia. And I think there's some other ones that we're, that, uh, that we're working on. Um, but we're shooting to do like six or eight a year uh, in the country. And then if we have to travel outside the country, I guess we will. But what it seeks to do is kind of bring our brand of of training or of like setting up for police maintenance training to um people that wouldn't ordinarily be able to get to um some of these other events like hits or police canine uh like or to the new england thing like you're out in idaho you're obviously not going to travel to albany new york i mean you know i traveled from oklahoma there and it was far like way far like i should have gone to the moon it would have been faster. Mm. But, you know, so um, this is a way that we can organize these events and bring them to you. Um, and I think it's going to be pretty successful just based on the reception we've got. But, yeah, it's hrdpolicecanine.com. Um, check it out. At least you'll put it in the show notes or somebody or I will. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Also, guys, for uh, we, we mentioned earlier that Pat has a book that he wrote back when he had this awesome mustache. Um, if you go to <laughs> most, mo- most everybody's on Amazon. Listen, you go to Amazon, you search Pat Nolan. It comes up in books, companion dog obedience training with the electronic collars. It's, uh, it downloads right onto your Kindle. You can, you can get the Kindle app on your phone. It's, I think, uh, when I download, it was less than $10. Um, it's an amazing, uh, uh, literary book for you guys that want to learn e-collar and training, especially pet dog folks. Um, there's, there's a lot of amazing information from an amazing guy, Pat, thank you for your time. We loved having you on. Hopefully we uh, get to do it again. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, always enjoy our conversations. Thanks guys. All right. And keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. Good night guys. Thanks. Thanks. Proven canine. Proven canine training, proven results, providing scenario-based training for law enforcement based on years of law enforcement and military service. Creating dogs for scent detection, tracking, patrol, and obedience. National certifying official for all aspects of canine and canine-related work. Watch for seminars across the country, near your locations in Northeast New Mexico and Amarillo, Texas. Find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Proven Canine Training, the letter K, the number 9, or at www.provendogtraining.com or give JJ a call at 417-844-5816. 
Everybody loves stuff that goes boom. And we couldn't talk about stuff that goes boom without talking about Tripwire Operations Group. They're some of the best in the industry at stuff that makes loud noises and blows stuff up. Specifically for guys on this podcast, for if you're handling an explosive dog or you're a trainer of an explosive dog, they have one of the most well-rounded, ready-to-go kits in the correct amounts and odors for any national standard or state standard certification. Head over to tripwireops.org to check it out. They're headquartered in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and a group of first responders dedicated to serving first responders. They believe that the most highly trained and prepared first responders create a safer America. They prepare you guys and other first responders and military to protect our country by providing products, services, training, and relationships which together no one else provides. In fact, they've done several HME large hide courses recently, which is a really valuable thing for explosives handlers because you're not really able to get that much odor in one place at one time safely. And these guys do a fantastic job. Be sure to head over to tripwireops.org and check out the full list of classes they've got going on and have contact info there on the website. Again, tripwireops.org. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, (coughs) broadcasting the bite.